If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee, and I'm a PhD student in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Western University, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Rana M. Jalil on her new book, Work of Rape, published by Duke University Press in 2021. Dr. Jalil is Associate Professor in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of California, Davis. As a member of Writers for the 99%, she co-authored Occupying Wall Street. Work of Rape is the recipient of Duke University Press Scholars of Color First Book Award. Many congratulations and welcome to the New Books Network, Rana. Oh, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. And you have such a lovely podcast voice. Um, I'm hoping I don't stutter too much. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much for being here and and speaking with us today. Um, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about how this book was conceived and what motivated you to undertake this intellectual journey that uh, led you to bringing this book to us? Sure. Um, So I... um, I think I've been thinking about this for a really long time. I was in high school and then in college in the mid nineties. So, you know, I'm telling my age now, but um, at that time there was both a, there was both the, the news that was happening in the former of the former Yugoslavia's disintegration and the rape camps and the idea of mass rape. And it, and there was also a kind of, what gets called third wave third wave feminism in the U.S. Um, uh, and this and this kind of emphasis on um, take back the night that was really resurgent and a lot of the feminist media that I saw around that time was re- was really focused on sexual violence that had that wasn't by accident that had been an organizing rubric for the movement that had started some decades back and and to try and consolidate and. Um, inform kind of a, a feminist plan or agenda. So what happened was I was living in that moment and I was reading things that I was reading things about uh, rape and wartime conditions. And I was also um, going to feminist activist meetings and movement building um, spaces where rape was being talked about as the absolute worst thing that could happen to um, a woman in particular. That was the language used at the time. And I started trying to think through the connections. Um, for me, it really, when I was that young, the question was really um, pretty simple and unsophisticated. It was, if rape is the worst thing that can happen to you, how do we talk about being in a rape camp or rape and work? It's, it seemed like there were differences. And I, I wasn't, um, at that point, I didn't really know how to think about them. So I kept researching. <laughs> that was when I started researching to try and figure out 
um, that question. And of course, the question changed uh, as I as I did research, as I entered a graduate program. You know, it changes based on what discipline you're working in. It changed the question takes on different shapes based on what knowledge formations you want to address and you want to engage with. So it changed quite a bit from that, um, and I'm glad it did. But that was the that was the initial. Um, that was the initial kind of impulse. It came out of trying to make sense of the world and being in organizing and activist spaces. Mm-hmm. In the work of RIP, you have developed a queer method, which you call Law Beyond Law. Could you tell our audience what this method is and the significance it holds for your book? Sure. So the the idea of Law Beyond Law, it's a little L. It's hard, it's hard to communicate. It, um, I think speaking, it, it works better on the page, but it's a little L law beyond big L law. So the idea is that law carries a lot of weight and authority. There are ways to address law that um, speak about it on its own terms and logic. So for example, following a history of law that talks about what decisions, what legal decisions or what case law, for example, has been produced on a certain subject, right? So around sexual violence, for example, or around race. And with the little L law, I wanted to think more about the production of law itself. And there, um, there are people who, like um, uh, Siobhan Somerville, who think about, um, they, like, who think about reading sideways, so embedding law within its historical moment, for example, to look at the kinds of histories and motivations that are that are um, that are provoking some of the decisions, and and to think about precedent in that way. Um, and I wanted to build on that. I also wanted to think about how the structures and logics of law itself even uh, inform what inform the kinds of decisions that um, that come out, or ways that we think about single issues, because there are stru- there are other structures, legal structures, and legal concepts in place that are shaping their meaning. So, for example, consent and co- consent and coercion. Um, there are larger debates around this about autonomy, uh, rape in general. And the idea of ras- and, and the idea of mass rape, what that can mean in the context of war, if you're looking to charge an international crime, it's going to be shaped and constrained by the by the um, the other violations that they that rape and sexual violence get nested within. So crimes with against humanity, genocide, or war crimes. And those kinds of structures structures shape what's possible to imagine. And they also come out of uh, and those um, ideas of what. Uh, those ideas of violation and the ability to prosecute or name and describe um, or name and describe uh, these kind of violations through law activate all sorts of political investments and political strategizing that can operate very unevenly in a divided world and in a world where colonialism and imperialism and the legacies of them are still very active. Absolutely. Um, I'm also intrigued as to how this queer method uh, enabled you to be in conversation with queer of color critique, international scholarship on race making and queer feminist activist scholarship to explore the interconnection between law and its codification of sexual violence. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. So a lot of queer of color, so queer of color critique is really about thinking about the inherited gaps, or this is how I perceive it, to think about what kind of gaps and that we inherit or what kind of thought that we inherit that doesn't get questioned even in revolutionary thought. So I'm thinking a lot about Rod Ferguson's um, introduction, for example, to aberrations in black and his work to make clear how Marx, for example, 
um, keeps some categories around family, around gender and sex intact, even as he critiques others in liberalism. And so one of the, so I was thinking about, so having been a student of um, queer of color critique and read a lot about it uh, in general, one of the things I was thinking about is how the its emergence in the 1990s is first, um, and this is not a this is not a bad thing, right? It's just something to observe. It's it's U.S. based. It's not thinking transnationally, and the idea of what sexual freedom might mean as a result isn't in, isn't engaging with the kinds of things that are happening. At that same moment, the queer of color critique is kind of being born in queer theory and queer studies are being kind of born out in the academy, which is uh, the fall of the fall of um, communism, the so-called post-socialist moment and the advent of ethnic warfare. So I'm trying to kind of think of all those things together to see what that does about ideas of value and property and um and that sort of thing. And I just, I thought someone was going to keep the dog out of here, but a little dog just wandered in. I hope he doesn't bark. <laughs> um, you write that um, efforts to create legally identifiable sexual harms um, lead to the standardization of consent and coercion. Could you reflect on the dangers of such standardization? Well, I think some of the danger, take. I would take it back a step. It's um, that consent and coercion themselves, the way that they, the way that they're the way that they're understood is often very in a very individual individuated uh, way. So you your consent is violated at the in an individual level in a sexual violation, or you feel coerced. And what doesn't get interrogated as a result are some of the larger structural de- uh, the larger structural questions about formations of desire, what we like, what we don't like, and then also just the grounds that we're living on and how we. And how we move through them, um, and how we, and how we live, how we live on them. So, how do we think about sexual consent and coercion when, for example, we're on, uh, we're in a settler colonial space? How do we think about how uh, consent and coercion, sexual consent and coercion, particularly as, as it's been as um, sexual violence becomes a kind of rallying cry to unite a certain a certain kind of wing or strand of feminisms. You know what does that what does that do to other kinds of violation that um, can't factor in and other experiences of sex and of sexual violence or harassment or rape that can't factor into that can't um, you know where the experiences are racialized or are about you know very much about um, being being colonized and how those can't don't factor into the violation or the understanding of sexual harm itself, except as kind of an add on, they become proof of coercion or proof of um, sexual harm, but not, um, but they're not kind of theorized from that kind of perspective, location or place. Right. Um, you write that the method of law beyond law destabilizes progressive notions of history, time, and social group formation, and um, pushes against the standardization of consent as being the most relevant indicator of sexualized violence. Um, could you expand on this and comment on how it allowed you to interrogate structural violence um, validated by the law? Okay, so in the in the intro, when I'm talking about the method, one of the things that lets me do is think about... Um, the idea of um, fraud, uh, rape, of rape by deception, which in which um, in legal scholarship provoked 
a lot of debate because it was a way of if if you don't if if the if the core violation and this is kind of how law thinks about how law thinks about this of rape is a violation of autonomy then why are there not prohibitions against rape by deception in general and so some of the cases that people wrote about where rape by deception was um, uh, was uh, where there were charges of rape by deception, you know, just as kind of an example of it, uh, involved cases in occupied Palestine. And so the the argument there was just that, look, you know, here we've got this example where, um, you know, give the, the situation's politically fraught, fraught, but we have someone claiming to be um, something they're not. We have someone um, who's an Arab claiming to be Jewish, and this is... Um, and this, uh, and if the the woman had known, then this sex would have wouldn't have been consented to, and so it's turning all around this idea, this idea of fraud that doesn't go back in any way and account for what's hap- you know, what's happening in the world, what's happening on the land, what's happening to make that experience of consent and coercion something that is even that's even recognizable. So one of the ways to think about, uh, so one of the things that the method tries to do. Is think about is, is think about again like those those other kinds of the other kinds of movements of law and the other movements of history and just things that fall out of a straight um, a kind of straight legal analysis to to um, you know to just bring up what other kinds of structural violence get hidden or obscured by charges of sexual violation sometimes so that's um, so I read about that and I read about that in the intro. A little bit, but it comes up. It comes up all through the book. But that particular, that particular um, example, is in the introduction. Yeah, uh, you also write about the racialization of mass rape. Um, would you like to reflect on the politics of racialization of mentality and the production of the category of failed states, thought to be in dire need of intervention, and its gendered, sexualized, and race implications? Sure. So. I'm following theor- uh, theorists of race who are thinking about um, who are thinking about race as something that isn't um, isn't fixed or by- isn't fixed in the body. Uh, it's something. It's something, and it's something that changes in all sorts of in all sorts of ways over time. So it's not a it's not a completely fixed um, or obvious identity necessarily. Now it can, it can be, but the way that it works. Politically, is tracking how that is tracking how that changes over time. So, what the racialization of mass rape? It's it's trying to think about what it means that mass that mass sexual violence and um, becomes such a becomes such an, a, a kind of flashpoint in the '90s to the point that it becomes um, part of international human rights. It's um, it's prosecuted in, in ad hoc tribunals and emer- the emergent international criminal court, it starts to take on this kind of like sexual violence as a, as a concept and particularly mass sexual violence or ethnic rape become terms that, you know, really hadn't been tossed around a lot popularly before. These were not the traditional ways of describing rape. So part of the way that this, so part of what happened in this moment, and I talk about this in the book, is that some of that popular, some of that kind of popularization of mass sexual violence depended on an idea of mass of not just mass rape, but also mass ethnic 
of mass ethnic conflict and the sec- and sexual violence within it. Um, this fit and helped ex- this fit certain pre-established categories of law like genocide, like crimes against humanity. So they're shaping what I'm kind of arguing, and it's not it's not causal. Right? It's not like one thing causes the other, but you get a kind of atmosphere where the way that one would describe genocide or crimes against humanity is inflecting how mass sexual violence gets rendered because people want them addressed in this forum. They want them addressed in some way. And international law, which had been kind of suspect during the era of decolonization at this moment becomes seen as a side of justice, at least for, at least by some people. And so there's a push to narrate um, what's happening in ways that would be cognizable to it. And that, and so I'm thinking about some of the effects of that. Um, some of the effects of that when we're thinking about the racialization of mass rape is that you end up with you end up with legal mechanisms and ideas about rape that again are in an, in a very uneven politically uneven world where power isn't evenly distributed. So when we say mass racial rape or mass ethnic rape, we might think, for example, of the Congo or Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia in the '90s. But generally, people don't think about U.S. prisons, for example, or what happens at the borders of the of, of the U.S. The kind of sexualized violence that happens at the at the borders with migrants. It's you know those aren't considered those don't become mass violations. And this has something to do, um, I think, with the structure of law itself. Right. You write in chapter two of your book that feminists are nationally produced. U.S. or international feminist legal knowledge on mass sexualized violence largely depends on unrecognized and silenced. Uh, conceptualizations of race, indigeneity, and what you call the sexual state form. Um, would you like to tell us what you mean by the sexual state form and how does this conceptualization lead you to interrogate um, theoretical limitations of sexualized harm? Okay, so one of the things that I'm thinking about with this idea of the sexual state form is just, it's a heuristic, so it's not meant to um, it's not meant to describe everything in a lot of detail, but it's just kind of a tool or a device to think about what legal feminists in the U.S. when they're trying to push um, sexual violence as a into or, or what's called at the time women's rights into international human rights law and human and um, international law in general, how they're working to think about the language that law that law will be able to hear. How to think? How do you think about sexual violence in a way that makes it a human rights violation or makes it? Um, and any other kind of violation of international law. So part of what is happening, like part of what um, I'm tracing in the in the 80s and in the 70s, what happens right before the ethnic wars, is feminist organizing in the Americas around U.S. intervention in Latin America, and feminist organizing with um, with all sorts of groups at the Encuentros. The Including the, including indigenous groups, including um, international organ like feminists who work with international organizations, but also law on the ground and local groups. They're all meeting at these at these meetings called the Encuentros. So this is um, in chapter two, like you said. So what happens when you see right all of these different kinds of theorizations of what sexual violence might mean from these different locations, but you know what you what the legal feminists get out of this is an argument for sexual uh, for domestic violence as torture that gets analogized to 
the kinds of torture that dictators and states um, that st dictators and states visit on political prisoners. So there's a lot of slippage in um, there's a lot of slippage that's happening there between the act the the politics right of um, these dictatorships, how they're like, uh, what kind of imperialistic involvement there is in propping them up, the U.S. interference in the hemisphere, all of these kind of things are going into producing a political a political prisoner and a subject of that of, of torture in that way. But the the move, but that gets erased when the move is to analog analogize domestic violence to torture, where women live in a parallel state of terror in which men are men are like the state. That's one of the arguments that gets made. So it was interesting to me to think about how the politic, the political read of what's happening in that region is influencing the way that sexual violence or sexual harm or domestic violence and intimate violence in general get described and get re-narrated. Right. Um, your work offers possibilities of understanding race, gender, capitalism, and sexual violence and justice. Um, why do you think um, this is important to bring this together? And, and what does it allow you to understand about law, feminism, um, particularly legal feminism, and sexual violence? So I I think what's important is to is to break out of these individualizing these individuated and individualizing models of sexual violence and also to break sexual violence association with um, certain kinds of racial stereotypes and regional stereotypes. Um, if I think we've seen for a long time how sexual violence can be used as an alibi to justify all sorts of other kinds of violences from. Um, in, from invasions in Afghanistan to um, to calls to increase policing at home, and so one of the things uh, one of the things I try to do in the book is to think about how these these circulating ideas of what constitutes sexual consent and coercion, for example, are really just kind of, are pulling together or are kind of formed through all these different sites of violence of violence from from uh, violence in Latin America to the to the you know the so-called ethnic wars in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda to, um, to you know just across you know it kind of moves across the globe and we get this idea of what consent and coercion can mean through U.S. based largely but we can just we can just say people working in um, kind of Europe uh, traditions of European law maybe and U.S. based law that we get these definitions of what sexual co coercion and consent can be that are kind of, that are kind of culled together and, and um, they're kind of pulled together and culled together from all these discrete sites where via like sexual violation is happening to the body, but the way it translates into law becomes um, something where it's happening to all women and the, and the discrete um, the situations that people find themselves in, you know, again, like under conditions of colonialism or empire or war, um, that shape the meaning of that of that kind of sexual violation fall out, and what we get instead is a global problem of sexual violence that, you know, the U.S. the U.S. in particular as a watchdog of democracy and all of that kind of self posturing has to, uh, as a result of all that self posturing has to address. So that's um, that's one of the things I'm thinking about in the book, and I think that this is one way that we might start trying to think about um, 
how when they use and and this is again something that's written a lot of, uh, that a lot of people have written about how right how rights and how and how liberalism can be vehicles for capitalism U.S. empire that kind of thing. So I was interested in thinking about how these discussions of sexual violence and and um, consent and coercion could also be those kind of vehicles globally and and then also again how that kind of work reverberates back onto U.S. campuses as well or U.S. spaces. So what happens when, you know, what kind of, so what, what are the, what are the impacts of, you know, post gold, uh, post cold war orders of global security and governance on the meaning of sexualized violence? And then also how does that, um, how does that work with in the U.S. itself, which has a has an you know has large issues and a long legacy of disavowing enslavement, indigenous dispossession, and racialized violence? What are what are these kinds? Of, what are these moves allow in the U.S. Um, even as they're something that's extended and understood as something that's happening on a global stage? In the book, you interrogate legal feminist and political theorizations of state sovereignty and responsibility to understand how they render militarized uh, mass sexualized violence against certain marginalized groups invisible. Um, would you like to reflect on how this invisibilization and silencing has been normalized and how um, it has contributed to epistemic structural and sexualized violence? Okay, so some of this is also about just structures of international law, I think you're you're asking about. So and a lot of this is about jurisdiction. So law, um, international law is kind of famously understood as not necessarily having, and this is the legal, the words they use in the legal descriptions all the time, it doesn't have any teeth, meaning that its enforcement mechanisms are, are paltry at best. So when there are things like charges by the International Criminal, uh, criminal Court for things like mass sexualized violence, there or or these tribunals in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. This can only happen when certain states are rendered weak enough and um, not considered capable of governing on their own. Right, they're thought of basically as fail, as failed states. So the criteria for for jurisdiction is already kind of you know for jurisdiction under these terms: gen, um, rape, you know, rapist, genocide, mass sexual violence, crimes against humanity. Those the the kind of territory of those former charges in practice ends up impacting states that um, and regions and peoples that are not necessarily uh, well positioned within the geopolitical order. And, you know, the the U.S. isn't is a powerful state and the U.S. is not something that would be um, that would really be caught up in those nets in the sa- in those nets of law in the same way, uh, maybe rhetorically, but not in a but not in not that we've seen in a in a way that, um, like in a material way. So this is, um, so this is part of what, you know, this is part of what I'm thinking about too, is how, when we recognize instances of mass sexualized, mass sexualized violence or, or hear things about like rape as genocide or crimes against humanity and warfare, we're also, we're also operating, um, on a, like on the terrain where that can be made visible. Right. So there's certain, there's certain kinds of actions made by certain kinds of people that could provoke mass attention to those kinds of charges. And then there are other things that don't are not popularly understood as, um, 
as mass sexual violence as genocide. And there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of literature too, right, critiquing like the language of law and how law in and of itself, in trying to define genocide, for example, or war crimes, as located in this um, as like events that just happen once. And they have like a beginning and an end and not and how that language or that idea or understanding of how violence works is incredibly faulty because the impacts of it reverberate for so long. And they and there's something that people live with for a long time. So I'm concerned about I'm concerned about all of that. And I'm concerned about what it means for organizing and for feminist organizing in particular to take up um, sexualized violence without thinking through how without thinking through necessarily how the structures that would make it visible that you can use, um, you know, what they're also going to leave out or what they're also going to efface. And so it's a, it, you know, I think it's really difficult and I'm not into a, I'm not into a politics of purity. So, you know, people use rights all the time and they use them in some ways that are great and um, can be helpful. And they use them in some ways that aren't so, um, that aren't so useful in my opinion. So I think this is one of the things that, um, we need to have a lot more careful thought and dialogue on. Absolutely, yeah. I realize we are almost uh, nearing the end of this episode, but before we let you go, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? Oh yeah, I'm. Um, I'm working on. Uh, you know, I just. This is so funny that you're that you're asking this question. I'm working on two on two books. One is an autoethnography and um, kind of mixed genre project on my on my own um family which is mixed race um part of the muslim indian diaspora on one side and then um poor white working class on the other and so i'm writing this i'm writing a piece that called animals in the tree that thinks about how that thinks about working class whiteness um the muslim diaspora the the u.s south's black and white race binary um, and ask the question of how do we understand race and justice and that kind of and all those kinds of good things uh, when when you already have an animal in the family tree when you're racialized already through this language and growing up in certain ways around around animals and and animality. Um, my father was a is a veterinarian, so that was um so that's a more personal project, but it's um it's I think it's an exciting one. And then I have um. Then I have more straight up kind of legal and queer theory projects as well. One of them is thinking about thinking more deeply about these um, transits that happen with queer of color and trans of color globally and thinking about what kinds of work racial cap, what kinds of um, configurations of capital or property or power allow the travel of those terms and then what they can disrupt or what they can enable. So it's thinking um Again, about moving some of these um, these uh, these ideas that began in the U.S. Um, and in the and within U.S. Um, and within U.S. spaces, what it means for them to move globally. So I'm doing a special issue of um, South Atlantic Quarterly that's on that. And then the last uh, the last project I'm doing is um, about race and corporations and thinking about corporate liability. In the U in the U.S. context for um, all sorts of uh, for like basically like all sorts of violations, including things that we might call civil or human rights violations, and looking at international um, like what ha- what's happening with or what happened 
and is still happening around those issues in both international law and um, at a couple of sites where uh, at a couple of sites of um, grassroots protest. So that's the other book I'm working on. Oh, these are such important um, projects. Um, I'm particularly interested in your book on autoethnography. Um, <laughs> I, I hope to read it. Um, thank you so much, Rana, for this conversation and for writing a book that we um, needed. Um, I look forward to getting acquainted with all your upcoming projects. And this was an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Um... Thank you so much. It was uh, it was really nice to to talk to you, and I hope I did your questions justice. You did. <laughs>